Let's get started. All right. Hey, today is going to be a little bit different. You what? So you, yeah, so you've been warned. Um, no, it's not going to be like that different. Uh, but we're going to take a break from working through Revelation. And we're going to talk about martyrdom. We're going to talk about persecution. Um, that's kind of a major subcurrent as we're reading through Revelation. We've seen that Jesus is called the faithful witness, right? Um, we've talked about how the way that God shows his power is super countercultural, right? The Roman Empire shows its power by conquering their enemies and by killing people. God shows his power by sending his son to take on our sins, to die on the cross. Um, and that's just not how things <laughs> have always worked. All right. So uh, we're just going to talk about what this looked like back in the ancient world. Uh, I'm going to read one account of somebody who gave their life for their faith. And then we'll talk about persecution as it stands today. So this is an account um, this comes from Fox's Book of Martyrs, which was written in the Middle Ages, but is based off of, I think, Tacitus, who was an ancient Christian historian, or an ancient historian of um, Christianity in the Roman Empire. It says, the first persecution of the church took place in, 80, or in the year 67 under Nero. Have you guys heard that name before? What do you guys know about Nero? He's a terrible yeah, not a great yeah. Oh, we're going to learn about him. Ah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, so took place in 67 under Nero, the sixth emperor of Rome. This monarch reigned for the space of five years with tolerable credit to himself, but then gave way to the greatest extravagancy of temper and the most atrocious barbarity. So you're going to get a ton of SAT words. So y'all are going to just really, it's for free too. I'm not even charging for all these SAT words. Uh, among other diabolical whims, he ordered that the city of Rome should be set on fire, which was executed by his officers, guards, and servants. While the imperial city was in flames, he went up to the tower of Mecanus and played upon his harp, sung a song of the burning of Troy, and openly declared that he wished the ruin of all things before his death. This guy was kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, besides the noble pile called the circus, many other places and palaces and houses were consumed. Several thousands perished in the flames and were smothered in the smoke or buried beneath the ruins. So, just to summarize, <laughs> Nero decides, I'm going to burn Rome down. Historians think he probably wasn't happy with how the Senate was running, and he just wanted to start over and rebuild things, so he set it on fire. It says, the dreadful conflagration, that just means a big old fire, continued for nine days, and when Nero, finding that his conduct was greatly blamed, and a severe odium, I think that's a smell, is that what that means, odium? I think it means a smell. Uh, severe odium cast upon him. So it just means like people, people turns out, don't like it when you light their city on fire. Uh, he determined to lay the whole thing upon Christians at once to excuse himself and have an opportunity of glutting his sight with new cruelties. This was the occasion of the first persecution, and the barbarities exercised on Christians were such as even excited the commiseration of the Romans themselves. So Nero says, I need someone to blame. People don't like that I've set their city on fire. The Christians are kind of weird. I'm going to make them my scapegoat. I'm going to blame them. And Nero was kind of crazy and just super cruel, so he thought, I'm going to find new ways to be awful to these Christians. And it was so bad that even like Roman citizens saw how he treated Christians, and they're like, that's kind of rough, man. Don't do that. Nero even refined upon cruelty and contrived all manner of punishments for Christians that the most infernal imagination could design. 
In particular, he had some sewed up in the skins of wild beasts and then attacked by wild dogs until they died. He had others dressed in shirts made stiff with wax, fixed them to axle trees, and set fire in the gardens in order to illuminate them. This persecution was general throughout the Roman Empire, but it increased rather than diminished the spirit of Christianity. In the course of it, St. Paul and St. Peter were martyred. So again, Nero sets Rome on fire. People don't like it. So he says, I'm going to blame the Christians. And he just does awful, nasty things to them. He puts them in animal skins and lets wild dogs tear them to pieces. Um, He uses them as human torches to light his garden. Um, He was just kind of a sicko. (laughs) Um, A few years later, or a couple uh, decades later, Domitian, do you guys remember that name? Who's Domitian? He's the beast. Maybe, yeah. Uh, Domitian is the emperor during the time that Revelation was written. Uh, He has John the Apostle boiled in oil and then exiled to Patmos, um, according to tradition. So this is the backdrop of the book of Revelation. It's not easy, and it's not safe to be a Christian in Rome at this time. Um, There was an early church leader named Tertullian, And he famously said this. He said, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. Right? The blood of the saints is the seed of the church. What do you think he means by this? That we are only going to become more entrenched in our values. Yeah. The more we're persecuted. Exactly. He's saying, look, the Romans are killing all these Christians. But people look and they see Christians standing firm and being bold in the face of persecution and suffering and death. And that's actually an argument for Christianity. And that's what we see historically. We see the more that Christians were persecuted, the more that the faith spread throughout the empire. A couple hundred years later, there's a guy named Athanasius. He writes a great teeny tiny little book called On the Incarnation. Um, Y'all should read it. Read it during Christmas time. Um, But one thing he says is he says, says, hey, listen, um, here's one reason that we know that Christianity is true. He says, I know people who were cowards. They were just a bunch of scaredy cats. And then they came to know Christ, and now they're bold. And he even says they were leaping to their deaths. Not like literally, but he's saying they were just jumping out of their seats at the opportunity to be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Right? So Jesus is coming and just tearing through the Roman Empire. Jesus is changing lives. He's giving people boldness to suffer and die for Christianity. Now, people, like, wouldn't literally just jump out to, like, they would be smart about it. And so you couldn't go to church on Sunday morning. A lot of Christians met in places called catacombs. Do you guys know what catacombs are? They're tombs, yeah. They're underground, so you go in these tunnels, and there's bodies buried there, but that's the only place you could hide from the Roman government. So they would have these secret meetings, and there was a secret symbol that they would do to identify themselves as Christians. Do you guys know this? Yeah. Yeah? So there you go, and they would draw this. I don't know if we can trust it. It's kind of fishy. (laughs) <laughs> and to show that you were a Christian, that answer to the puzzle was... Huh? Um, so if you're listening on the podcast, I just drew half of a fish, and the answer to the puzzle is the other half of the fish. Sorry, I have to explain things to people who can't see it. Why? So you guys have seen fish, fishes on... Is that, right? is that the right plural? Fish. Is fish or fishes the plural? You guys have seen the fish symbol. Fish. <laughs> fish. You guys have seen fish on cars. <laughs> and that we like we all know like okay that's a symbol of Christianity. Why why this? Why was that like their secret symbol? Like oh we're gonna draw a fish in the dirt. Isn't that because of what he said? 
I can't remember if it was one of the sons of thunder, if it was Peter. Okay. Didn't he tell them he was a fisherman, and whatever he called him, he said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Fishers of men, that's one answer. The other one is fish is an acronym for who Jesus is. So, ichthus, right? So the ancient Greek word is ichthus. Uh, it's spelled like this. And this stands for who Jesus is. So I is for Jesus, so Jesus. That symbol is for Christ. So Jesus Christ of God, Son, Savior. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. That's their shorthand for this is who we worship. <laughs> ichthus. So does it go up and down? No, it would have gone like this. Okay. I like thought about writing down and I was like, that, that's not helpful. It would look like this. Um, but that's just their shorthand saying, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. That was their shorthand. That was their secret symbol. Um, but that was kind of like the secret password for some of these places to get in. So I want to read you guys an account of an early Christian martyr. Um, I won't read the whole thing. It's actually kind of long, but I'll read just a selection from it. This is the martyrdom of Polycarp. Um, <clears throat> Paul speaking of fish. <laughs> speaking of fish. I always thought Polycarp sounds like a Pokemon, but no, he's an ancient church father. Like Magikarp becomes Polycarp. Isn't that right? Polygraph plus Magikarp equals Polycarp. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, um, we're not talking about a Pokemon today. We're talking about Polycarp, who was the bishop of the Church of Smyrna. Have you guys heard of the Church of Smyrna before? <laughs> you have. <laughs> yes. Uh, Smyrna is one of the seven churches that we talked about, uh, I think, two weeks ago. Um, and Polycarp was a disciple of John, who was a disciple of Jesus. So that's pretty cool. Like the guy that discipled Polycarp is a guy that sat at Jesus's feet. Um, so this is Polycarp. He was an old man at this time. Um, he was arrested for leading the Christians. And here's his like trial before the Roman government. So it says, but as Polycarp entered the stadium, I think this might be the Colosseum, um, there came a voice from heaven, be strong, Polycarp, and be courageous. And no one saw the speaker, but those of our people, so Christians, who were present heard the voice. And then as he was brought forward, there was a great uproar when they heard Polycarp had been arrested. Therefore, when he was brought before them, the proconsul asked if he were Polycarp. And when he confessed that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to recant, saying, have respect for your age. Polycarp is like 80 or 90 something at this point. So they say, have respect for your age and other such things as they were accustomed to saying. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent. Say, away with the atheists. Atheist was a word they used back then for Christians. Because Christians wouldn't worship all the gods of the Roman Empire. So like, oh, you're godless. You're the atheists. Um, obviously, we use that word differently today. But back then, atheist meant Christian. So they say, away with the atheists. So Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd of lawless heathen who were in the stadium. He motioned towards them with his hand, and then groaning as he looked up to heaven, he said, Away with these atheists. But when the magistrate persisted and said, Swear the oath, and I will release you, revile Christ, Polycarp said this, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? That's beautiful. He says, I've served him for 86 years, and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? But as he continued to insist, saying, swear by the genius of Caesar, he answered, if you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar as you request, and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I'm a Christian. 
Now, if you want to learn the doctrine or the teachings of Christianity, name a day and give me a hearing. The proconsul said, persuade the people. But Polycarp said, you I might have considered worthy of reply, for we have been taught to pay proper respect to the rulers and authorities appointed by God, as long as it does us no harm. But as for these, I don't think they're worthy that, they should have to def- that I should have to defend myself before them. So the proconsul said, I'll have the wild beasts, I'll throw you to them unless you change your mind. But he said, call for them, for the repentance from better to worse is a change impossible for us. But it's a noble thing to change from that which is evil to righteous. Then he said to him again, I'll have you consumed by fire since you despise the wild beasts unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, you threaten with a fire that burns only briefly and after just a little, a little while is extinguished. Um, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. Why do you delay? Come on and do what you wish. So they execute Polycarp, um, but here's this old 80 or 90 something year old man saying, I follow Jesus, do your worst. (laughs) And this isn't the only story. There's tons and tons of stories from the ancient church of Christians just boldly standing up and saying, all right, do it. (laughs) I follow Jesus and you can't change my mind. Um, That's a pretty convincing argument. That's a more convincing argument than any logic or science or answers. It's just that boldness to say, come hell or high water, I follow Jesus Christ. I want to talk about persecution today um, and martyrdom. There's about 70 million Christians from uh, the ancient church all the way up until today that have been killed for their faith. Um, More than half of those, so 35 million, have happened in the past 100 years. Um, So there's a lot of atheistic regimes, there's a lot of Muslim regimes that have executed Christians. Um, A lot of Christians have died in civil wars. Um, So there was the one in Congo and Rwanda because Christians said, hey, I want nothing to do with um, this genocide. Like, I'm sitting this out. And so they were executed for resisting violence. Um, There's a really cool resource if y'all want to follow it. I know they're on Insta and I think they have their own app. It's called Open Doors USA. And they just kind of tell modern day stories of martyrs and of persecuted Christians. And so they say, hey, here's a pastor from Myanmar. Here's a pastor from Pakistan. Um, And they sometimes like change their name. But they say, this guy just got sent to prison for 10 years for preaching the gospel. Hey, pray for him. Um, So Open Doors USA, if you want to follow them on Instagram, um, it's just a good resource. I think the very least we can do is make ourselves aware of our brothers and sisters around the globe who suffer for the gospel. Um, There's a quote, there's a historian, a modern day historian of the church called Gerald Sitzer, and he says this. He says, discipleship implies suffering. It leads to persecution. It tests metal, demands steadfastness, requires endurance, and even leads to death. Not every Christian was and is called to literal martyrdom, Still, every Christian is called to surrender his or her life to God. Did y'all catch that? Like, sometimes we think like, oh man, like the ultimate sacrifice is giving your life for the gospel. Well, yes, sort of. (laughs) But like, it's not about whether you die or whether you live. It's about your full-on commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Sitzer goes on and says this, The early Christians died because they confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. His Lordship challenged all other claims of authority on their lives. Wealth, status, power, and even Rome itself. They believe that Jesus tolerates no rivals. The value of their example is not the martyrdom itself, however, however noble and courageous, but their commitment to Christ's lordship. That we might have to die for Christ is irrelevant. How we live for Christ 
is the real issue. So with that in mind, I want to think of the ancient Christians who have gone before us, but even more so, I want to think about persecuted Christians around the world today. I went to a seminary called DTS. Seminary is just a place where you kind of nerd out over the Bible and study the Bible and theology. But one of my biggest privileges was sitting by Christians from around the globe. Like I got to study the Bible with pastors from Kenya and Korea and China and India. And like, we have it pretty comfortable here. (laughs) Like we have it pretty good in America. Like, yes, you might be unpopular. You might lose some friends. You might get made fun of. But I had friends in other countries who would come to class and say, hey, pray for my church at home. Uh, the government decided to bulldoze our church. <laughs> um, and they can because they're the government and we have no say in the matter. Um, I had another pastor who was in one of my preaching classes and he got up in front of us and he looked at us and said, hey, today I got a green card from the USA and they offered me to extend my stay and live here. But I'm rejecting it. I'm going to go home to my home country. I'm probably going to get thrown in prison. I might get killed. But I believe the Lord's calling me to bring the gospel back home. And you just hear stuff like that and you think, like, I'm not worthy to sit by this guy. Um, and so we've got brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution, imprisonment, even death. Um, so be aware of their stories, um, whatever that looks like. Pray for them, yes. <laughs> but I want to ask, how else do we support those Christians? How else do we show solidarity for them? Other than praying for them, other than being aware, what, what does that look like? Being strong in our faith when we're challenged. Yeah, exactly. Because you know, I, I know personally, like, I don't I don't face any sort of, uh, like, tribulations as far as my faith goes. I'll yeah. be at UTA and say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian because I wear a cross necklace. Like, oh, yeah, cool, cool. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't face any repercussions. So just being solid in your faith when yeah. you're out there in the real world is just a, a good way to, I guess, back our brothers and sisters up. Yeah, showing that you're a Christian and resisting evil. <laughs> Right? Resisting temptation to sin. Like, it all kind of leads toward the same thing of faithfulness to Jesus. Like, it's the same muscle to be faithful to Jesus in the face of threats as it is being faithful to Jesus in the, sp- in the face of spiritual warfare. Uh, but yeah, I love that. Just being more open about it, right? What else? Maybe you can find a program or something that helps people in those situations and you can donate... Yeah in any way that you can to them? Yeah. Just financial assistance. They need it. Um, I I think the biggest way that we show solidarity um, is that we don't be silent about the gospel. Right? Like, they are in prison because they're not being silent about the gospel. They just happen to live in a place where that's illegal. (laughs) And so whenever we... This isn't... This is somebody else who said this. Um, I forget his name, but he's a um, scholar. <laughs> but he says this. He says, whenever we are silent about the gospel, we're siding with the enemy. Whenever we have a chance to share the gospel and we back down, we're siding with the enemy. And so finding chances to share Jesus, that's the number one way that we can show our solidarity with persecuted brothers and sisters. Um, it takes practice. Find people that are good at it and just follow them. (laughs) Watch them share the gospel. Come with them as they tell people about Jesus. Um, I I don't know how, like, evangelism has been presented to you guys. For me growing up, it was kind of like, hey, here's, like, a formula. You, like, ask people, like, hey, do you think you're going to heaven someday? And there's a place for that. But, like, 
I think bigger than any formula, bigger than any, you know, step one, step two, step three, is just make friends with people who don't know Jesus and make it your mission to hold Jesus high, to show Jesus as supremely valuable, um, to find ways to ask them those big picture questions. What's the meaning of your life? What's your purpose? Why do you want to do what you want to do when you graduate? Um, what's causing you to suffer? What's broken in your life? How can I pray for you? Right? Like, there's really natural ways to make that bridge and cross over into deeper topics um, without just firing all these big questions at people and aggressively confronting them about going to hell. <laughs> make friends with people. Show them Jesus. Lead them, lead them to the gospel. Um, I think that's one of the best things that we can do. That's one of the best ways that we can testify to the greatness of the gospel.